Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's go in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. And today we'll be looking at verse 4. Wouldn't it be great to uh, be able to time travel and go back and sit on that mountainside and hear Jesus deliver this message? Well, you got to put up with me today because that isn't going to happen, okay? So you just, you're stuck with me, all right? But it is his word and it is the living word. And so as we humble, humble ourselves and we come humbly under the word of God, this message is for us. And let's keep in mind, this message is not how to become a Christian, Well, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and do it all. We can't. This message is for those who humbly admit, confess, I can't. I'm poor in spirit. I need a Savior. I'm not my own solution to the problem. I'm the problem, and I need a Savior as my solution. It's very different. The Sermon of the Mount, when lived out, without a doubt, is counterculture. It's the citizens of the kingdom living according to what Jesus has said, describing this is what resurrection life looks like. This is what it looks like to belong as a citizen of this kingdom. It's a life that's upside down. We've been driven to God as his people. We've been driven to him for mercy, and we have found that he is merciful. So having been born again, then we share in the family characteristics. We begin to... Love one another in the way that Jesus prayed in John 17. We begin to share in these family characteristics because our Father is in heaven and our elder brother Jesus has paid the price to redeem us and to make us special people. So we begin to look and think more and more like Jesus, which unites us, it brings us together. Oswald Chambers, maybe you've had, uh, maybe you're familiar with his devotional. This is what he says about the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, We are so used to the sayings of Jesus that they slip over us unheeded. They sound sweet and pious and wonderfully simple. But they are in reality like spiritual torpedoes that burst and explode in the subconscious mind. And when the Holy Spirit brings them back to our conscious minds, we realize what startling statements They are. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, if you find yourself arguing with the Sermon on the Mount at any point, oh, and there's going to be a lot that we could say, huh? How's Pastor Wise going to preach that in 2020 or 2021? If you find yourself arguing with the Sermon on the Mount at any point, it means either that there is something wrong with you, ouch, Or else that your interpretation of the sermon is wrong. So let us hear, understand, and obey the word of the Lord, the message of the king, our king. Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be 
comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we looked last week, we found out, well, who, is, who are the blessed? Who are the happy that Jesus is speaking of here? And these are the individuals whose chief delight is in God. Therefore, they are happy, but not just happy in this lifetime, not just blessed in this life, lifetime alone, but happy for all time to come. Now, when we get to today, Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, it's, it's paradoxical. It's upside down in that the happy are the unhappy. Humanly, this makes no sense. But it's not a mere human that's giving this message. So if we rightly understand it, it makes perfect sense, the sense that we need. What are the two blessings then that stem from, last week we looked at, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What stems out of being poor in spirit? What springs out of that? We're going to see two blessings. Number one is a deep conviction. A deep conviction. This is brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn. That Greek word is pentheo. It means deep sorrow, anguish. So much that you cannot keep the grief contained inside. It, it ends up being in wailing. And maybe you've been there personally or you've been with a loved one. And they didn't care what people thought about them. They were so overwhelmed with grief that they cried out in a way that would be most uncomfortable, but it, it expressed the grief, the brokenness, the sorrow that they were going through. And loved ones, all that we can do around someone or when they're going through that is you're there. You might put your hand on their shoulder or they might come to you for a hug, but you can't deliver them and the anguish has them distraught. That's this word, blessed are those who mourn. The disciples of the Lord Jesus, last week we saw that they say something, they confess something. I'm empty, I'm poor in spirit, I have nothing. There's nothing good about me that God should desire me except that he loves me and he has set his love on me. Disciples of the Lord Jesus, they feel something. They feel a deep sorrow over sin. It's not just something that's, you know, cerebral. Well, just in my mind. This, is, this gets us to a, the core of our being, this conviction. Mourning is this. It's grief and sorrow caused by profound loss. And if we live long enough, we're going to go through this. We're going to experience profound loss. And we're going to see this unfold in our text today, that the greatest loss that we can experience is the loss of all self-dignity to be in the presence of a holy, righteous God. Blessed are those who mourn. C.S. Lewis helpfully explains, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciousness. But he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So when we go through trials and troubles and sorrow, remember that. That's a helpful quote. It's Romans 8.28 said in a different way that God has been so good and he gives us pleasures and he gives us things that we enjoy. They're all from him. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts through our pains. That's when we ask questions that really matter. Is there a God? 
Is God good? If God is good, then why does he let suffering happen? As Christians, we don't run from these questions. But we also don't run from God with these questions. We run to God with these questions. That's where we're safe and only there. If I run into my own thinking, my own feelings, I'm in trouble, and so are you. We run to God with these questions. This deep conviction, this brokenness, what we feel, this deep sorrow over sin. Beloved, let's define what it isn't, first of all. It is not merely a confession, a cold confession. It's not just admitting guilt. Dear Lord, I'm so sorry I got caught. <laughs> Try this out with kids, right? You, you, know, you know working with kids. Like, no, he did it first. She said it first. It's not just a... I'm sorry. Now say it like you mean it. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, we're not there yet. This is not just, I, I said it, okay? This isn't just, here's your prayer. You know, what are you guys all doing in here? You worship Jesus, sorry, what does it take? Tell me what I gotta say. What do I have to sign? Repeat after me, dear God. It is not just saying a formula, a cold confession. It's not taking, some of you might have been raised where you said prayers upon prayers upon prayers upon prayers in a way that Jesus described as a vain repetition, thinking that you're heard and that's not how you're heard. It's not a cold confession. It's not indirect blame. Have you ever, you know, someone's apologized to you and they said, oh, I'm sorry. And you're like, man, we're making progress. And then they finished it this way. I'm sorry you feel that way. Wait, what just happened there? That was a bait and switch. That was a 180. I'm sorry you feel that way. So you're really not sorry. You just did a sideways slam that I confronted you over whatever it is that I needed to confront you about or tell you about. And you don't really care, so you just threw a dig at me. This isn't just a cold confession. It's spiritual. It's not just general in its application. We, need to, we have to understand that. You're jotting down notes. You've got to write that down. It's spiritual. Just like for those who are poor in spirit, Jesus wasn't talking about those who just had limited resources, so give away everything and you'll be good with God. No, that's not how it works. This is a spiritual application here. This blessing, it's not simply just for everybody who suffers and and grieves and goes through loss. Mourning often leads to searching for answers to life's hardest questions. But beloved, listen, mourning alone does not result in God's blessing. And we live in a culture is devoted, devoted to our entertainment. Make no mistake about this, beloved. Our minds can easily be occupied for 24-7. Do you ever turn it all off and get quiet before the Lord and ask God to evaluate you? Let's make that more specific. Did that happen this past week? Did you stop at any point and invite God to evaluate you? God, here's my priorities. What do you say about my priorities? 
God, here's what I think is important, but what do you think is important? What does your word say is important? It's so easy to get caught up in living for you name it. That's what we said last week. What, if I had this, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be happy. If I just, what's in that blank? If it's anything other than God, you're going to lose it. It will not support you. It will not hold you. It will not sustain you. So sports, they're great. When they take the place of God, they're an idol. Your job, wonderful. But when it takes the place of God, it's an idol, it's, it becomes idolatry. Your fame, your reputation, the great outdoors, you name it. If it ever takes the place of the living God, it becomes insufficient to hold you and sustain you. And it cannot provide, nor can relationships, human relationships around, provide the sustaining comfort that Jesus is talking about here. It's not if it will fail, it's when. Oh, we need to hear what Jesus is saying. Sin, in fact, is what opened the door to all suffering, shame, Genesis chapter 3, in that day, we died. The curse of sin. Are we ever weeping over our sin? I'm bringing you this message, but I'm not the authority on this message. There's only one person that perfectly could have preached this message and said, I have no guilt And it was Jesus, the original one who delivered this message. As I allow this message to weigh in on me, on my heart, I'm found wanting. But God has given us another day, the Lord's day, a day to come together to hear his word, to draw near to him, and he draws near to us. Listen to what David Brainerd said, the 18th century missionary to the Native Americans, had such an effective ministry. We would read his journal and read his his life story and say, wow, if I could just be a man like that. Let's listen to how a man like that thinks. In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. See, as Christians, beloved, we don't have to hide from, pretend, ignore, Deny that we have problems and sin. We can go to God with this. This conviction, this brokenness is a heartfelt contrition. It's not just a cold confession. It is definitely spiritual. It's not just general in its application. It is a heartfelt contrition. Now, what does contrition mean? A feeling of responsibility for wrongdoing. Contrition is when you and I stop blaming other people for what's going wrong. When we feel the responsibility, we just don't admit it, we feel the weight of our wrongdoing. Beloved, this heartfelt contrition begins with me. It begins with you. A brokenness over my sin when you are broken over your sin. Now listen to me. If you're listening today and you say, but I'm not broken over my sin, I don't even think about my sin. That's a startling statement. If, 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 if you are a child of God, if you have been born again, again, if the spirit of God dwells in you, 
you will be addressing your sin. True Christians do not embrace sin. We do not ignore sin. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't excuse that. Well, you know, that's just old Mr. So-and-so. That's just how he talks. No. No, in love, we confront sin, but guess where we start? Not with the speck in a neighbor's eye. We start with the log in our own eye. And Jesus didn't say, leave the speck in your neighbor's eye. But he said, deal with the log in your own eye first. You ever had an eyelash in your eye? Man, the world stops for me. Like, ah, 911. Till that eyelash comes out of my eye or whatever it is, a little speck. Deal with the log in your own eye first. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He said, the Lord Jesus calls those blessed who mourn. He means those who sorrow for sin and grieve daily over their own shortcomings. These are they who trouble themselves, listen to this, more about sin than about anything on earth, including a coming election. Citizens of the kingdom of God, they trouble themselves more about sin than about anything on earth. The remembrance of it is grievous to them. The burden of it is intolerable. Blessed are all such. Does that describe you? And if you say, oh, not me, but I want it to be, that's a good thing. Isaiah brought into the presence of the Lord the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6. How did that end up? Verse 5, he mourned over his sin. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. How did you come to understand all this, Isaiah? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you seen this king? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Look full in his wonderful face. That's the only way that everything gets its perspective rightly in this world. When David confessed his sin of adultery and murder to God, he acknowledged that God is the ultimate one offended by our sin. He mourned over sin. Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Here's what it sounds like when you stop blaming others. When I stop blaming others. When we stop blaming God so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Whatever you say is true. Whatever you say is good. Let me conform to you. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, these, uh, the disciples were out fishing. They did what I've done so many times so well. I could write a book on this, how to go fishing and come home with nothing. <laughs> Jesus was in their boat, and he gave them an instruction. And when they pulled the nets in, they began to sink. And Peter, understanding that this one in his boat was not just a mere man or a really good teacher that knew something about fishing. 
He responded in mourning when he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. Have you ever said this with Peter? For I am a sinful man, O Lord. I can't stand in your presence. Paul, the great apostle, Romans chapter 7. He was honest about the remaining sin in him, even after he became a follower of Jesus Christ. He wrestled with sin. An analogy that's a little helpful, everybody driving a car. You drive that car out on the highway, it's fine. Everything's running fine. There's a presence of something dangerous, though, and it's called carbon monoxide. As long as everything is running well, you're going to be okay. If something's not running well, if you're in a closed environment and those deadly fumes get enough, they'll take your life. As believers, there's a remaining sin in us, but we don't capture it, hold on to it, bring it in closer, shut the windows, we'll be all right. No, it'll kill you. We deal with it. We deal with it through confession, repentance, and forsaking the ways of sin. We deal with it at the cross, beloved. And Paul would mourn over his sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Listen to how the apostle cries out. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He answers that, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's our hope our living hope. Beloved, Christians understand the high cost of our sin. It was for our sin that Jesus died. So just think about someone who knows Jesus died for me because I'm a sinner. My sin is why he died. How then can we continue on in sin? That doesn't work out. We have been set free because Jesus was crushed in our place. This reality produces a joy in us. Paul writes, Romans chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, I'm saved. Jesus washed my sins away. Now I'll go on living my life. That's not what a Christian says. Paul says, verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you were set free from the slum of sin, why would you go back? Paul is saying, if you're a believer, you won't, you can't, because you understand the true cost of your sin. This heartfelt contrition, it begins with me, and then it goes somewhere, it extends to others. Brokenness over the sins of my family, my church, my community, my nation, and the world, and you would say the same. That your heartfelt contrition, this brokenness, extends to your family, to your church, to your community, to your nation, and to the world. Psalm 119, 136, the psalmist said, my eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Why is he mourning? Because people do not keep your law. Is that our response to people living in sin? In the Old Testament, Job interceded for his family, this righteous man. 
Fathers, is this how you are over your children, over your families? That God, are, are we right with you? Are my children pleasing you? Am I setting an example that you would have me to set before them? Job was this kind of man. And he would get up really early in the morning after they would have family parties. And he would say, Lord, I'm offering to you sacrifices. And just in case, if my children have done anything, I'm interceding on their behalf. I want my children to know you. I want my children to love you. I want my children to fear you because you're the reason why we're alive. And you are everything to me. Men, does that sound like us? That's a man of God. That's a man whose legacy will last for all eternity. And we're talking about it all these thousands of years later, Job. When Paul wrote to the Christian church, 1 Corinthians 5, he accused them of being arrogant rather than what they should have been doing, which was mourning. The report there that was verified, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, that there was a young man involved in a sexual immoral relationship. He was having sex outside of marriage. And the church wasn't dealing, and he wasn't dealing with the sin, and the church wasn't dealing with the sin. Okay, what does Paul say about this? Verse 2, 1 Corinthians 5. You are arrogant. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Don't you care that this young man is destroying his life? Don't you care that this young man is going against God's plan for marriage and he's beginning to cycle down in his life? Don't you care? Aren't you mourning and grieving over his sin? Yeah, but everybody, not according to God. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What's Paul saying to them? You better deal with the sin the way God would deal. It's better to deal with the sin now while they're living where there's an opportunity for them to repent than when it's too late and they stand before God in judgment. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, every revival proves clearly that men who are outside the church always become attracted when the church herself begins to function truly as the Christian church. And as individual Christians approximate to the description here given in these Beatitudes, it's what I said a couple weeks ago, it's much better than just shouting the gospel at people, making little you know, placards and filling your car with bumper stickers and everything else you can think of to just loudly, brashly tell people they're wrong and you're right and they don't know God and you know God and you're condescending. How much better when people simply take the word of God and obey it and become attractive lights set on a hill, a city on a hill, and people say, what's going on with you? Can I know your God? Can I know this forgiveness? How will they, listen to me now, how will they ever ask that if we're living in sin as they are? They'll never ask that because there's nothing upside down about us. We're just flowing with, flowing with the course of the world. This blessing for those who mourn, we need, to live, we need to pay attention to it, to mourn over my sin, to mourn over other sin, and even extend this mourning over the sins of the nations. Ezra 
He mourned over the faithlessness of the exiles, Ezra 10 and verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, easy for me to say, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. So listen to what he is. He withdrew, and throughout the night, he, he was not eating bread, not drinking water. Why? He was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. It's much better than just going out and shouting at the exiles, cursing the exiles. You see anybody on YouTube preaching like that? Gathering at funerals of fallen soldiers, cursing people? That's not attractive at all, except to people who also have an evil heart. But the followers of Christ, we, we take note of this. When Daniel prayed, Daniel chapter 9, will you jot that down in your notes, wherever you're taking notes, or on, on the side of uh, blessed are those who mourn, put it on the side of your Bible. Daniel chapter 9 is a prayer of Daniel, and he begins, and he understands what God is doing, and what is taking place, and why they are where they are, and he includes himself in this prayer of confession. And he prays over his people, and he includes himself, we have done wrong in your sight. But at the end of this prayer, the answer comes. And in verse 23, the messenger of the Lord was dispatched and comes to Daniel. And Daniel has just spent all of those first 22 verses. He spent saying, we are messed up. We are deeply broken. We, it's all wrong with us. And the messenger comes from the Lord, and at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to let it, uh, come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Yeah, but I'm greatly messed up. But you went to the right place, Daniel. And the word coming back is, Daniel, God knows everything about you and loves you. Who does that for you? Who knows everything, everything about you and would still love you? You have any friends like that? They see the gnarly sides of you and they don't run for the hills. They don't look for a new church based on those faulty reasons. They stay around because they love. Why? Because they're really good at loving. No, wrong. They have been loved by God. So they can take all the sin, all the shame, and go to God because he loves them. So if, check this, if God loves me, what what can you do to me if you don't love me? What do I really lose? Relationships. They're good, but they're not in the ultimate place. And when I'm loved by God, when you're loved by God, then everything else finds its perspective. And it can remain in the good place and it didn't get put into the ultimate place. Daniel, you are greatly loved. 
Child of God, you are greatly loved. Sinner here, and you have never turned and trusted in Jesus. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son for you. You are loved. There's nothing more that he can do to demonstrate his love for you. What must you do? Respond, receive his love. It will transform you. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this. He says, being poor in spirit and mourning is not being absorbed in self. He says this, by contrast, the man who genuinely mourns because of his sin has been drawn out of himself to see God in his holiness and grace. It is this, his sight of God, that has made him mourn. Paradoxically, it is the same sight of God that will bring him comfort. The God against whom he has sinned is the one who forgives sinners. Isn't that good? The God against whom he has sinned is the one who forgives sinners. This is the point. This is what deep conviction brings us to. It's brokenness that brings forth the blessing of. The second blessing is divine comfort. And this is where we see great beauty for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is divine comfort. This isn't just human comfort. Haven't you been there when you've tried to comfort someone and you don't know what to say? I'm there all the time. I want to say the right thing. I want to help. And I'm just, my, my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. What do I say? What do I, how do I help? This is divine comfort. Disciples of the Lord Jesus, they find great deliverance from sin. Oh, we feel the weight of sin, but we find deliverance from sin. It's in Jesus. They shall be comforted. There's an immediate comfort in this life. It's a present reality. Our greatest problem, our greatest threat must be identified The law reveals our problem and our sin is what causes pain and suffering, sorrow and separation and brokenness in relationships. The the hurts that run so deep, no human eye can detect them. God sees all of these. And sin led to disease and to death. It breaks us down. It ushers us away from this life. But for a believer, death is just an Usher into the presence of the Lord. Death doesn't win. Once that threat is identified, then we can deal with it. How much money is being spent right now on security and cyber security and all of the different ways that, I mean, it's mind-boggling. Some of you probably are, are, you work in realms like this and you understand protecting and identifying threats and our greatest threat is sin. Once we identify it, then we can address it. The law cannot help, but grace, grace can. And grace does. Where do we go to find comfort? Where do we go to find an anchor for our souls? It's found only in the gospel, beloved. And in the gospel, our mourning is turned to dancing, not depression. If I'm becoming overwhelmed in grief... I'm sinking more and more into myself rather than turning my eyes upon Jesus. Our mourning is turned into dancing. 
Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40, and some of you may love, Handel's Messiah. That's a long concert for a kid to sit through. I think I was pretty young sitting through that concert, but I remember that song, Comfort ye, comfort ye. That's about all I can do on that one. It comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 40. You're like, that's good. I'm glad that's all you can do. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Peace, comfort my people. When Jesus preached his first sermon, he went home to Nazareth, and there he was in the synagogue. And the reading that day was from Isaiah chapter 61. And the scroll was read, and then Jesus folded up. He rolled the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And then he sat down, and he told them, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. What was in there? What was in that message? Isaiah 61 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Anybody brokenhearted today? Okay, there's a place you can go to proclaim liberty liberty to the captives. Anybody still bound in sin? There's freedom. It's found in Jesus. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. On the hillside, when they heard Jesus give this message, they knew their Bibles. That meant something to them. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of, give it to me, give me your ashes. Give me, your, give me your waist. Give me all that. Give it to me. And let me exchange that for a beautiful headdress like a bride would wear on a wedding. And the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Anybody there? Just mourning and mourning. And the Lord is saying, come to me. I'll give you oil. Often pictured of the Holy Spirit. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Well, who came and fulfilled all this? Jesus. Jesus did. And he promised his disciples that he would send the spirit who would come alongside. The same word, the root word, parakaleo, the comforter, the helper, John 14 and verse 16. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Same word. Same word, the helper. In this life, immediate comfort. Ultimate comfort in the life to come. This is the promise. This is the divine comfort. Immediate comfort in this life and ultimate comfort in the life that is to come. This is a future guarantee. You can take this to the bank. Jesus promised true comfort to the citizens of his kingdom. When he was teaching and he brought up a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus, a different Lazarus than John chapter 11, the brother of Mary and Martha. 
But the rich man started out, he had his whole life together. He had everything. Everybody looked up to him. Look at that guy. He's got this. He has that. Man, he's amazing. Lazarus was the nuisance at his gate. He had nothing except he had faith. He knew himself to be poor, and he also knew himself to be poor in spirit. And Jesus says that they died. The rich man was buried. Lazarus was carried by the angels into the presence of Abraham, safe. And the rich man was in hell. He lifts up his eyes. He missed the point of life, and he's looking, he sees Lazarus, and he sees Lazarus with Abraham. And he's telling him, hey, can you send Lazarus, have him dip his finger in water and come to me and and cool my tongue? I'm tormented in this flame. And what does Jesus say? That there's a gulf fixed between them and he cannot come to them. And then he says this in verse 25 of Luke 16. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things? You are comforted for that little moment like a flower is here and gone. Grass is here and gone. A cloud goes by in the horizon and you see it and it's taken from our sight. You were comforted for that little moment in time. You live for the audience of yourself. And you miss the point of life. You miss the God who made you. He says this. Remember in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted. There's the word. He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Oh, loved ones, don't follow the way of that rich man, because what did he say? Then please send Lazarus to my five brothers and tell them I messed up. Don't come here. And the response of Abraham is they have the word of God and they have messengers of God. And if they won't listen to the word of God and they won't listen to the messenger of God, though one rise from the dead, they won't listen to them either. Oh, may our hearts be yielded, yielded to the son of God, yielded to the king. Jesus delivered this resurrection hope in the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I loved preaching this passage, 1 Corinthians 15. On the resurrection, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written and Paul quotes the Old Testament and it's a taunt song, all right? This is a scriptural, na, 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 okay? This is you lost, na, 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 hey, hey, hey. All the fans say to the losing team, goodbye. The guy who strikes out. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, hey, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? What do you have, death? Nothing on the child of God. Death is turned into a defanged usher to take us into the presence of God. That's it. That's all it is. 
That's victory, beloved. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear what Paul is doing in this passage? I have no fear. I have God. I've been given victory. He died in my place. Therefore, verse 58 says, My beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. This is the hope we have. And this is resurrection hope. And this takes our final enemy, death, and makes it, renders it impotent. I want one more verse. Some of you may struggle with really believing that God loves you. In Revelation 7, verse 17, listen, listen to what John describes that God will do for his children. Let me ask you a question. When you were little and you were hurt and you were crying, who's the one person in your life that you would allow to wipe your tears away? Your mother. Okay, when my girls were hurt, if I was the only one around, they, they hung, you know, they'd cling on to me until Ginger walks in the room and then they're like, mom, and they turn right from, right from me to mom. What we see in Revelation 7 is God pictured in language as a mother. The one who stoops down and says, come here, and wipes away the tears from her eyes. The God who created everything, who spoke the universe into existence, he is so condescending to us in that he stoops down and Revelation 7, verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You are a great sinner, and so am I. But understand, the God who made you loves you, and this will be the final, that he will wipe away all the tears and comfort us in a way. You don't want anybody messing with your eyes. And God says, come here. I love you. Daniel, you are greatly loved. So what are these two humanly impossible blessings that stem from being poor in spirit? Deep conviction, brokenness. And we say that's a blessing. To be broken is a blessing. And not just that, but divine comfort. This is beautiful. So let me ask you, are you, have you, do you grieve over your sin? Are you dealing with the sin? Am I dealing with the sin in my own life, in your life? Do you want to be forgiven of your sin? Or just carry on like the rich man. Live in your life for you. Your plans, your dreams, your goals, your desires. Are we broken and not just aggravated over the sins of others? And let us respond, beloved, by looking to God. That's where we shrink to our true size, where we understand I'm a great sinner. But in the words of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, but I have a great Savior. He said that when his memory was failing. I remember two things. I am but a great sinner. What else did you remember, remember, John? I have a great Savior. Do you know him as Savior?
If not, don't miss the opportunity that is available to you today, right now, to deal deal with your sin and come to Christ. Let's stand together. Whatever that next step is for you, take that step. If we can help you, that's why we're here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort of the Holy Spirit that you've given to us to guide us in the truth, to show us how beautiful and worthy Jesus is of our lives. Father, I, th- I pray that you'll take this word and you will bear fruit in the hearts and lives of all who hear. May we be those who are blessed because we mourn and in you we find comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.